Section 59 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 10. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 59. Bruce at Bannockburn. 1314. By P. Hume Brown. At the end of seven years, after Bruce had landed at Turnbury, almost every place in Scotland was taken from the English except Stirling Castle, and that castle was now besieged by Bruce's brother Edward. He made a bargain with the English commander of the castle, whose name was Sir Philip Mulberry, that the Scots should get the castle if within a year King Edward did not send an army to fight for it. When Bruce heard of this bargain he was not pleased, as he could not raise nearly such a large army as the English. But his brother's answer was, Let the king of England bring all the many as. We will fight them and more. Be it so, was Bruce's answer. We will abide the battle like men. It was a rash bargain that Edward Bruce had made, but it was to end in the most famous day in the history of Scotland. The king of England was to come and fight for Stirling Castle not later than Midsummer Day, that is, the 24th of June. And he kept his word for the very day before he and his army came to the place where Bruce was waiting for them. As Stirling Castle was the place for which the two armies were to fight, Bruce had chosen his ground not far from the castle, so that the English would have to fight him before they could reach it. So on the long summer evening of the 23rd of June, Bruce and his men saw the English host draw near them, and a splendid sight it must have been. Edward's army was the largest that the King of England had ever led. It was said that he had 100,000 men, of whom 40,000 were horsemen. It was, indeed, what the Bible calls an army terrible with banners, and many of Bruce's men, as they saw it come on, must have wondered if they could ever hope to win the victory over such a mighty host. Though Scotland was now a united country, Bruce could not, of course, raise such a great army as Edward, since England had far more inhabitants than Scotland. Indeed, though Bruce did his best to raise a strong army, he had only about half the number of men who followed Edward, so that in the battle that was to be fought, there would be two Englishmen against every Scotsman. However, the Scots had this great advantage, that their king was a great general, while the king of England was not. And before the battle, Bruce showed how skillful he was by the way he arranged his men. The place where he arranged them was on the banks of the little stream called the Bannock Burn, and about three miles to the south of Stirling Castle. On one side of his army was the stream which the English would have to cross before they could make their attack, and in other places there were bogs which lay between the two armies. And where there was firm ground between them, Bruce took care that it should not be easy for the English to ride over. He dug pits and then covered them with turf so that they should not be seen and all over the ground he put steel spikes called calthrops, which would lame the English horses and break the ranks of the cavalry when they charged. In this way, therefore, the English knights were prevented from riding all at once upon the Scots, as they would have done had the ground between the two armies been perfectly smooth and open. Bruce divided his army into four parts, the largest part being made up of the footmen with long spears. He had only a very few horse soldiers, but we shall see what a good use he made of them. He had also some good archers, though not nearly so many nor so skillful as the English, 
for the Scots never cared for archery and always liked best to fight with their spears and axes. When the English came up, it was too late to fight that day, and so both armies lay in sight of each other, waiting for the morrow's battle. But in the evening, two things happened which must have put heart into the Scots for the coming fight. An English lord named Clifford rode at the head of three hundred horsemen in the direction of Stirling Castle to carry assistance to it. Now Bruce had told Randolph this should be prevented, and when he saw Clifford riding to Stirling, he turned to Randolph and said, Randolph, a rose has fallen from your chaplet, meaning that he had failed in his duty. But Randolph at once put himself at the head of a troop of foot soldiers armed with spears, and caught Clifford on the way. At first it seemed as if Randolph were to be beaten, and Douglas asked leave of Bruce to go to his assistance. Bruce refused his permission, but Douglas could not bear to see his friend defeated and perhaps slain, and in spite of Bruce's refusal, he rode off at the head of his men to give help. Before he reached the place of fighting, however, the English were seen to flee, and then he ordered his men to return, so that Randolph might have all the honor of the victory. This was one event that was lucky for the Scots, and the other was this. During the evening, Bruce was riding in front of his army on a pony, and had only a battle-axe in his hand. An English knight, named Sir Henry de Bohune, knew him by the gold coronet he wore on his helmet, and thought that if he could slay him, he would put both an end to the war and win great glory for himself. So, on his great war-horse, and with his lance couched, he rode full speed upon Bruce. Just as he drew near, however, Bruce made his pony turn aside, and avoided the thrust of the lance. Then in an instant he rose in his stirrups to his full height, and with one blow of his battle-axe on de Bohune's helmet, felled him to the ground. The Scottish leaders who were near Bruce blamed him for risking his life when so much depended upon him, but he only said, I have broken my good battle-axe. As soon as the sun rose the next morning, the two armies prepared for battle. Before it began, the Scots went down on their knees to pray, and when King Edward saw this, he said to an English lord near him, See, they are kneeling to ask for pardon. Yes, was the answer. They are asking for pardon, but from God, and not from us. Yon men will conquer or die. Then the fight began, the English knights riding against the Scottish spearmen, who were all on foot, and this was the fiercest part of the battle. At the beginning, the English archers bent their bows and sent their arrows among the Scots as thick as snowflakes. Had this gone on long, the same thing would have happened as had taken place at Falkirk, when Wallace's spearmen were shot down by the English arrows, and the battle was lost. But Bruce had thought of this beforehand. At his command, the Scottish mounted men rode against the English archers, who were, of course, all on foot. Their bows were of no use in a close fight, and soon they were either slain or put to flight. For hours the battle went on, but, as we know, the English were not on ground where they could fight their best. Their horses had not room to move about, so that they got mixed up among each other. Then the boggy ground and steel spikes prevented the horsemen from riding quickly, and when a horse soldier is brought to a standstill in a crowd, a soldier on foot, armed with a spear, is more than a match for him, as he can kill the horse and slay the rider before the latter can free himself from his stirrups. And this was what happened to thousands of the English horsemen. When their horses were slain, they were either trampled to death or pierced by a Scottish spear. And so the battle raged, till a thing happened that decided which side was to win. From a hill near at hand, afterwards called the Gillies Hill, 
what looked like another Scottish army was seen to descend. It was only the servants or gillies who attended on Bruce's camp, and a number of men who lived in the neighborhood. But as they came in a body and with banners flying, the English thought they were really another army, and then they lost their heart and began to give way. When the Scottish spearmen saw this, they fought all the harder, and soon the enemy was fleeing in all directions. When King Edward saw that the battle was lost, he at first rode to Stirling Castle, thinking that he would be safe there. But Sir Philip Mowbray, the commander of the castle, told him that by the bargain he had made with Edward Bruce, he would have to surrender it the next day. So there was nothing for it but that the beaten king should try to reach his own kingdom if he could. And a narrow escape he had, for Douglas rode after him as far as Dunbar, a distance of sixty miles, when Edward got into a boat and sailed to Berwick, where he was safe. This was the greatest victory that the Scots ever gained, and the English thought it was such a disgrace to themselves that they said it was a punishment for their sins. So much booty fell into the hands of the Scots that it made Scotland a richer country. Precious garments, jewels, and plate, which Edward and his knights had brought with them, were all taken, and many of the chief men of the English were made prisoner and had to pay great sums of money to be allowed to go home. But the chief thing to be remembered about the Battle of Bannockburn is that it made Scotland again a free country, and that it made Scotsmen feel more than ever they had done before that they were one people and one nation. End of section 59. This recording is in the public domain.